Christian sexologist. What does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean to be a Christian sexologist? It's kind of an oxymoron, really, isn't it? That's what most people think. Well, I'll go I'll tell you briefly what a sexologist is. A sexologist is basically somebody who studies sex, researches sex, writes about sex, teaches sex, does some sex therapy, doesn't leave a lot of time for having sex, but <laughs> my son, who's an only child, says that's why he's an only child. But anyway, he's also a Presbyterian minister, so I'm not sure with the connection there. But anyway, so <clears throat> that's what a sexologist is. A Christian, I was born into a Christian family, but that was not really why I am a Christian. When I was a teenager, I was at a Methodist missionary school, and at the feet of wonderful British missionaries, I came to know that the only way for life is really if I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that was the time I really gave my life. How did I bring these two together? When I was after doing medical school, I was teaching at medical faculty in Colombo and did my postgraduate study in Hawaii. Great place to get into sex. And I was highly recommended. I was <coughs> working at the, I mean, studying at the University of Manoa, Hawaii, and I was worshiping in a wonderful Baptist church. And there I was able to bring my twin passions of God and sex together. So that's my history. Sort of. The quickie version. <laughs> I don't think we spoke about sex that much in this, in this church before, but anyway. Oh, we, are, we are Anglicans. <laughs> we talk a lot about sex. All right. Right, Pastor Adam? <laughs> you know, we talk. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'll let, leave it to Dr. Patricia to continue. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, uh, just to give those of you who are Christians, I'm aware that there are Christians and non-Christians here today. But for those of you who are Christians, just to give you my kind of background, I worship with uh, uh, the Anglican Church in Parramatta, and I have one husband and one son, my husband sitting over there, and often jokes are directed at him, and he's quite used to it. So <coughs> my son, as I mentioned, is a Presbyterian minister at Epping, part-time minister at Epping. So that's my general history. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about parents, aunties, uncles, grandparents, your role in helping and nurturing your children in this world where kids are faced with sexuality at every turn. They live in a cyber world which is super sexualized. So let's look at who your children really are. Now I'm going to trust this wonderful Anglican minister at the back that everything will magically come at the right time and not look back. So, uh, your children, if they are teenagers, belong to what we call Generation Z or Generation Z. The generation, the teen generation, which is a lot of work being done on it. These are the digital, visual, global, cyber-connected kids living in a global cyber world. Teenagers are digital natives. For those of you young ones here, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You are literally born with a computer chip implanted in your brain and an iPhone in your hand. And that was most uncomfortable for mom, as you would agree. They just live constantly connected on Instagram, blogs, and Tumblr, 
ask FM, that's where they get their questions. They count their popularity in terms of the downloads and likes on their Facebook and their Snapchat. They live for their streaks on Snapchat, and if you don't know that, go and talk to your 10-year-old and they'll explain what a streak is. So, they are the wireless hyperlinked user-generated world of today. These are your teens. They are internet savvy. They are shaped to multitask. When they say we are doing our homework, listening to music, and watching something on YouTube, they actually are. They are trained. Their brains can multitask. Now, what about your babies? Those that were born in the year that the iPad was launched and after. So they were born with or after the launch of the iPad. They are what we would call the glass agers. They don't have to click a keyboard. They only know to swipe left and right. They are the ones who, as someone told me, toddle up to the television and, slide, uh, and swipe right to change the program. Because that is their world. They multi-screen, they are also multitaskers. And communication, friendships, even sources of identity of your children are based on this cyber world. This is what we as adults have to learn. You as parents have to learn. I have 19, 20-year-old youth workers coming up to me and saying, Oh, Patricia, you have no idea what children of today are faced with. And I'm like, you're 19, you're a child. But things have changed so rapidly. Your children are the most connected, socially aware, advertised to, and sexualized generation that ever walked this planet. And my dear Christian grandparents, parents, aunties, uncles, let me tell you something else. Research tells us that they are the generation least likely to stay on in church. So there lies your responsibility. Therefore, you need to have some idea, and we don't have time to go into this in detail, happy to take questions, some idea of the communication spaces of the cyber generation. I just picked a few. And I just want to give you two seconds to think, how many of these do you actually know about and recognize? Do you know what apps your children and grandchildren have on their phone? If you don't know, that's a catastrophe. It really is. Your kids need to have what we call an open phone policy. If your kids and grandkids are not willing to share with you what's on their phone, it shouldn't be on it. That's the bottom line. You are a parent, parent. That's the bottom line. The reality is you need to know. Even let's look at just a few of them where the arrows are pointing. The one with the, under the entertainment with the little red ball with the white squiggle. Hands up quickly if you recognize that. Well done! Two people! If you were... If you were, if you were a year six, I'm talk three, good. I'm talking primary school. If I go to a year five, year six, 100% would put their hand up. It's called musically. 
It's an app which allows children to live stream their mimicking very sexualized songs. Live stream to the world, often in their school uniforms. Can you even see the danger of that kind of activity? These are young brains who have no idea of the dangers, and yet they are on there by grade six primary schoolers. You need to know. I just passed another one there, the little one like a flame there with the blue under dating and hook up. Oh, there's Tinder for teens now, young people who are able to hook up online. But that particular one is called Hot or Not. And kids put up pictures and then you can rate whether you, what people think of you. Do you think that does for self-esteem of young people? You need to know. And if you're not scared enough already, right in the corner there is what we call Hide It Pro. It looks like a calculator. It works like a calculator. You put in a code and it becomes a place that hides everything else from parental eyes. Do you know? Now, I'm happy to answer questions on this. We don't have a lot of time. But I just want to flag two websites which are easy to remember, one of them is called commonsensemedia.org, commonsensemedia.org, and the other one is protectyoungeyes.com. Both of them are very useful websites and which give all about the apps and things that are available. Okay, so the, you need, and just in quickly one more comment, you need to make sure that the privacy settings are on and location settings are off on your kids' phones. If you don't know what that is, talk to your seven-year-old. They'll explain it to you. So therefore, ignorance is not an option. You cannot protect your children. The time when you could say, I'm homeschooling my children, they are protected, is gone. They get out there on the play playground, they're exposed to everything. If you let them go over and sleep over, that is actually a very dangerous thing to do nowadays. And I'm happy to talk more to that if you want to in the questions. But they're out of your little sphere. They're exposed to everything and anything. My dear parents, grandparents, researchers tell us that communication and relationships with parents, the better it is, gives teens better self-esteem and leads to less risk-taking behavior. You saw those statistics of STIs, sexual health, abortions. Relationship with you protects your children. It is your duty, it is your honor to guide and nurture them and give them a set of values. Dear people, if you are Christians, then you read the Bible and it tells you that. You can go to Deuteronomy and it says, impress God's values on your children. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Talk to them at home and when you're on the road. Talk to your children. Give them your values. If you are not the sex educator, and it applies to everything, but I'm talking about sexuality. If it is not you, then who? It will be their friends, but worse. It will be internet and pornography. Porn is the in educator of our people, young people today. 
the average age of firstborn exposure in Australia is 11 years. You cannot protect your children. So what I'd like to do in the time available to us is briefly talk about three things. Why children are so vulnerable? I know you had some talks about the brain. So as Manju said, Dr. Manju said, the brain, the heart, and the bottom. So I get the bottom bit to talk about. So you already talked about the brain and the heart. I don't think she quite called it that, but never mind. I'm putting words in her mouth. So when you're talking about the brain, you would have talked about this, but I'll talk very briefly to contextualize it in sexuality. And then a very important area, and that is where are your children looking to for identity? Because that is the basis of sexual choices. Who am I? This question which has been through the ages been a question that every one of us have asked. But it gets harder and harder for kids today to answer that question, and you are the one who can guide. And then helping your children navigate sexual values and behavior. So let's start with the brain, and we won't be doing, well, we will be doing heart when we talk about sex. A teen brain, a child's brain, is in a, what we call a work in progress. Now you probably those of you who are here for the brain talk are aware of this. A brain, when we were in medical school, that was long before Manju was even born, and that was when the dinosaurs were walking the earth, and I was in medical school in Colombo. We used to think the brain just grew till six years old and then just kind of got larger. Now we know that that's not so. Your brain is malleable, plastic. The scientific word is neuroplastic throughout life. But in the developing years, childhood to teen years, it is incredible change happening in your brain. This neural upgrade, this nerve connection changes, which means a young brain has immense potential. There is a use it or lose it happening. The, path, the pathways that are kept are the ones that are being used. And the ones that are not used will wither and die. Pruning, kind of a gardening term, but it works. And what goes into the brain will influence the wiring, thereby the attitudes, values, and from there the behavior. That is very important for you to know. What goes into your children's brains when they are growing up will affect the wiring, neuroplasticity. 2,000 plus years ago, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippians, said, whatever is true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, think about these things. Today we call it neuroplasticity. Nothing new under the sun. So the reality is, do you know what your children are reading, watching, what YouTube channels they're watching, what's on their phones, what television shows are they watching. I mean, even something as exciting as Game of Thrones is full of pornography. Are you aware what your kids are watching? Have you made them media savvy? Are you talking to them about what they're watching? Do you know what they're watching when they're with their friends' places? They're having a sleepover. Do you know? Are you the one who's guiding their choices? If you're not, 
then the word and porn is guiding what's feeding your children's brain. And there's one more thing that is relevant to this importance and vulnerability. And that is not all parts of the brain develop at the same rate. You probably talked about this in the brain talk. It's kind of inside out, back to front. So the first part around puberty that starts maturing is what we call the emotional, I call it the volcanic brain. It's when your sweet little girl or boy turned into an alien in the bedroom. Remember that time. Who is this creature? And you look, husband and wife look at each other and say, did we actually create this? You know, or maybe somebody, you know, swapped it in the night and created this monster that's in the bedroom. So, that grunted, how was your day? Yeah. Good? Yeah. So, that's that grunting monster. So, <clears throat> your emotional brain erupts like a volcano. This is the brain that says, I don't want to be a little girl or little boy. I want to be somebody of my own. I want to take risks. I want to be out there finding who I am. And of course, because it's driven largely by sex hormones and interest in sex. This is the volcanic brain. Now, that's good. That's what makes a child mature, grow up, leave home. Otherwise, my, like my son being 42 years old, you, you, your kid would be still crawling into your lap. That would be so bad for your arthritis at that age. But the reality is they need to grow up and let go. But, but, the part of the brain that is involved in maintaining control, what we call the higher functions, the control thinking brain, or what I call when I'm talking to young people, the wet rag that's trying to hold the volcano down. The control brain is kind of up here, and it's one of the last ones to truly mature. It doesn't actually mature till about the mid-20s. So what have you got in your developing kids? A volcano with hardly any control. I tell young people, your brains are like red Ferraris on steroids with the accelerator to the flow, hardly any brake pedal, and no GPS. <laughs> and God gives you an external GPS. Guess who? You. Parents, grandparents, youth workers, you are the GPS. And for the few young ones here who are kind of going through that cringe point now, you know, older people actually have a bit of wisdom, having lived a little longer than you. So I'm trying not to look at the young ones. So having lived a little longer than you, they do have a little bit of wisdom. So it does help to help them to be your GPS. And every one of you, when faced with a crazy, exciting activity, especially when the friends, the peers are saying, go for it, <laughs> the wet rag ain't working. You add a bit of alcohol and drugs to it, there is no control. This is the reality. My dear parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, every one of you have this responsibility to be that GPS. What Kids feed their brains will affect. Friends matter. Do you know who these your kids' friends are? You're the teen brain needs help. You are the external control system. Proverbs 22, for you Christians, Proverbs 22, 6 says, Start children off on the way they should go. And even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Start. 
start, never too young. Okay, so I said, one of the important things that, that volcano brain is this, who am I? We are all struggling with identity in today's world. But more so, in this young age, when kids are moving away from the family, we are talking teens here, not your littlies, not the glass ages or the alphas, but the ones who are moving away, they want an independent identity. So when your identity is no longer with mommy and daddy and nana and gramps, where is it? It's turned to friends and to social media. So social media and friends begin to be the source of identity. And what is social media and society telling our children? Be true to yourself. You do you. Have you heard of that term? Young people saying you do you. It means you got to be who you want to be. You do you. You can do what you want. You have to decide who you are. Society says, how would you know who you are unless you experiment? So experiment. Look at social media. Look at your friends. Be like your friends. But also search for those lots and lots of likes that tells you that you are in some way better. Better? In what way? Maybe in the way you look. Maybe because you've got the best, um, you know, six-pack or scrunched abs or shredded abs or whatever they are called or butt selfies or thigh gap or whatever. You are better to get those likes. You are hotter or you are cool than everyone else. A cyber world identity says put yourself out as a selfie, a Snapchat or Instagram photo and that is who you are. And you know what a streak is? It means that every day you send a Snapchat to someone, picture. So every day you try to send a better and better and better picture. And the longer you keep on it, you get a streak. And so kids who get up every day and they take a picture and send the every day's picture should be hotter, sexier than the other one. So the longer, the better streak you have, the more pictures you send every day. And this is very common, very popular. Talk to young people about it. You see, the cyber world identity says you need to project yourself to the world. And if you don't and can't get this I am better, then you need to keep other people down so you can feel and be better. So you've got to bully and harass other people to make yourself feel better. My dear parents, grandparents, not many grandparents, aunties, uncles, are our children happy? Are they happy? What are you hearing and seeing on television? One in four young children today has a current mental health concern. One in six Australian experiences anxiety. Suicide is the biggest killer of our young people. Why? Why our young people who search for an identity and can't find it? A world-focused identity of finding yourself. And if you can't find yourself and the world says, you know, you're not anybody. We, we want to bully you so that we can feel better. A recently, teenager commits suicide because she was bullied. Why? Why are we allowing our children increasingly being hospitalized for self-harm? Kids watching porn and wanting to live like porn stars? 
sexually and look like porn stars, when the increase in plastic surgery is more than just boob jobs, but rather genital surgery, so that young girls especially can look like porn stars? Why are we allowing our kids to be this way? Can we do anything? Now, this is where it is so important for you as parents. You need to ground your children's identity. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're here today and you're thinking it's all very good for Christians to talk Bible because they like talking Bible. Of course, we like talking Bible. But if you're sitting here as a non-Christian and thinking, what about me? Let me tell you this. You need to talk to your children about where they come from. Give them a narrative of who they are. Talk to them about your culture, who you are. Do you know who you are, where you come from? Share that. Give them a true foundation. That is the only thing that will act as a protection to the world-focused identity. But if you are Christian today, let me briefly talk to you. God, teach your children that God created them. It's so exciting. Talk to them about they are created in the image of God. And therefore, whatever shape, color, even whatever sexual orientation they are, whatever their butt selfie or side gap or whatever may be, it didn't matter because they have the thumbprint of God on them. That is the only identity that matters. They are created male and female by the God who created the stars. And therefore, God knew them from the moment of that daddy's sperm finding mommy's ovum and going, wow, from that moment. Psalm 139 says, you created my inmost being. You, God, knit me in my mother's womb. And I tell young people, you think mom and dad were knitting? <laughs> they were having the best sex ever. And if I'm at a conference with them, I, think, I tell them, why do you think they were so keen you come on the conference? And I love the girl. eyes go, oh my goodness, maybe that is true. And so they never look at their parents the same way again. But the reality is that you, mom, didn't know till about six weeks that when you started puking all over. But... God knew. God knew when your child was one cell. Talk to your children about that. How from that moment of conception, why do you think we are so against abortion? Because from that moment of conception, that one cell, God said, my child. And God came and died for us. We died for those who are unworthy. The Romans chapter 5. And therefore, Teach your children that, you know, there are many kids in churches, many kids who are at Penolai in all that excited activities who may not have a father, who may have from a single family or an adopted child. But teach them that they can go to the God who created the universe and threw those stars into space and go, hi, Daddy. And that's the Daddy whom they have from that moment of conception. And therefore, and this is where the kind of, what they say, the rubber hits the road or whatever, this is where you pull it in. In 1 Corinthians 6, your body belongs to Jesus. 
your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Honor God with your body. My dear parents, grandparents, aunties, uncles, teach every child this. A child who understands to honor their body will not want to send a selfie of their boobs or their genitals to someone. Oh, by the way, that's called a dick pic. You might as well learn some words while you are about it. If you hear the word dick pic, it means a picture of the penis. And so, these no child who honors their body will either send a picture or ask for a picture from a girl or boy. You wouldn't, because this is your body that you honor God with. This is your body that is really, really special. How can you treat it like an object that you buy at the reject shop? That's what I tell young people. It's like something to be used, consumed, and thrown away. It is precious. It's like a crystal vase that you hold in your hand, and you have to look after it. And this is all examples I use when I talk to young people, so feel free to use them. But it is so important that you teach your children of the importance of their body to you, to themselves, and to Jesus. If you're a Christian, the body belongs to Jesus. Everybody's body belongs to Jesus, but you have a foundation to talk about it. God loves your body. Your body is special. Therefore, what you do to it sexually matters to Jesus. So let's talk about sex. As a sexologist, we talk about desire, love, and what happens with intimacy. That's just a picture. I mean, you know, happy for you to take pictures, but oh, you never know, maybe fiddly brains are pretty. So I want to just spend a few moments talking about the science and society's view to sexuality. We are surrounded by narratives of sex. What do I mean by that? Stories. How we, some more seductive than others, how we listen and integrate these stories will affect how we look at the world, but particularly sexuality. We would call it our world view. So our world view is influenced by these narratives. Now, science brain imaging, neurochemical mapping, genetic studies, basically says this is how things are. Like I told you, in the old days, medical school with dinosaurs, we used to think that that was immovable, that was like fixed. Today we know that it's not that simple. We already talked about how your brain is plastic at any age, even in ancient old age like me, at 70, my brain is plastic too. Of course, your kids' brains are so much more, but at any age. So neuroplasticity. And another science which is being written about a lot called epigenetics, which says that even the way your genes and chromosomes, your heredity ex is played out, or your genes are expressed, is influenced by the environment in your mother's womb and even your grandparents and great-grandparents how they were. So there's, even science is not fixed. There is nature, science, and there is nurture, the societal, the nurture, the environmental influence 
that affects how your body functions. Now, what about our culture today? I don't even have to tell you. You have to only read or watch the news. We live in an individualistic culture of personal pleasure and independence. Who you are, what you do, only your choice. Your identity, your sexual choices are made by you. Because the here and now is all that is anyway. And your body is a commodity. It is your body to use as you wish. This is our culture today. Nobody should try to tell you that anything you do is wrong. Because your identity is based on what you do. Stay with me here. Your identity is based on your choices and your behavior. Therefore, if anyone challenges, not even says it's wrong, but challenges your behavior, they hate you. You with me here? Because your behavior is who you are. You have made the choice, my body, my choice, my life. If I don't like my body, I'll just do the surgery and take the hormones to change it. And if you challenge it, you hate me. You cannot love me and dare to challenge my choices. That makes you evil and bigoted. This is the world our children are growing up. And yet, we've already heard and uh, some statistics. Our children and we aren't exactly contented in this culture in this cyber-connected, sexualized world where porn is a primary sex educator of our children. We aren't very happy, are we? Our children aren't very happy. They're depressed, even suicidal. And therefore, for Christians and non-Christians alike here, I would like to offer you both a story, a new narrative maybe for some of you, but those of you who've grown up in the church, maybe a narrative you heard before, but does with a little bit of reviewing, a narrative that says the Word of God gives you a bigger, greater, cosmic story about sex and relationships. You see, the whole Bible speaks to the wonder of sexuality. We read from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created man and woman. He created man in his image and then as a suitable partner, he creates woman and he looks at man and woman. Everything else was good, but man and woman in the Garden of Eden was very good. I, ladies and gentlemen, God created your body. Teach your children that God created male and female. But when Adam looked at Eve, remember what he said? Oh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. It helped he'd never seen another one. But the reality is, you are like me. You are of me. But then his, his, his sort of eyes went from brain, heart to bottom. And he went, wow, where it matters, you are complimentary. You are suitable to me. Teach your children that genitals matter. 
that God created them for a purpose. And in marriage, this purpose of genitals coming together is a beautiful thing. It's glorious. We have a whole eight chapters in the sealed section of the Bible, which those of you who are Christian couples read on your honeymoon, the Song of Songs, which is erotic lovemaking between husband and wife. It's in the Bible. Sex is in the Bible. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Revelation. Jesus comes back to take his bride. What a marriage that's going to be. The whole Bible is a song to the beauty of sexuality. We read of it in Song of Songs, which is the sealed section. Love is as strong as death, it's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like a blazing fire. Sex is powerful. It's like a fire, the Word of God says. But fire is good in the place where fire is meant to be. It's great in a fireplace. It's simmering in the fireplace is good. In a bushfire on a day like today, it's not good. You fan a simmering teen sexual desire into the kind of fire that Song of Songs says, mighty flame which many waters cannot quench and rivers cannot sweep it away. It is meant for a place and a purpose. And God calls that marriage. One man, one woman. Matthew 19, not just Old Testament. In Matthew 19, Jesus speaks to it. And he says, male and female, they are created, and man will leave his mother and father and be united with his wife. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, marriage unites man and woman to serve God and serve each other for procreation, but it's also for fun. You know, it is okay to talk to your children about their genitals. Please teach them the right words for it. When they are two and three years old, your children have, your son has a penis and a scrotum, not a Kevin or a Willie or a Peter or whatever you want to call it. Your daughter has a vulva, vagina, and yes, I'll say the C word, a clitoris. It is okay for your children to know this. It is important they know it from you, otherwise they learn it from pornography. You need to be the educator. Procreation is in God's pattern, but so is recreation. When God said to Adam and Eve, get out there, you know, make babies, he could have said, you know, fill a form in triplicate and send it to the baby-making department and you'll have the baby delivered. No, no, no. He said, get out there and have the best fun while you're keeping my commands. Isn't that a gracious God? You know, we need to understand and apply this glorious picture of marriage and explain it to our children. Above all, marriage, for you Christians, you will know this, Ephesians chapter 5, is a model of Christ and his church. That's a wonderful picture. Teach your children young. When it comes to desire, very briefly, I want to go to desire, love, and intimacy. Give you a language to talk to your children. Desire starts simmering from the time you're Adolescent, puberty, puberty age is dropping, remember? So from a very young age, kids are being, especially being shown born, learning that desire, they're feeling that 
bubble of desire, that simmering of desire. That simmer says, I want. It's a want. Our culture today tells our kids, every want is a need. You see the difference there? You want something. But a need says, if I don't get it, then something will happen to me. I will die. Lust looks inward and says, I want to satisfy my desires. Then the world says, get it. Whatever. Same sex, other sex, premarital, extramarital, animal, child sex, anything. You want it, you desire it, take it. Because it satisfies you. It's good if you get a bit of consent from the other person. But basically, you matter. That's all that matters. You want it. The Bible tells us our heart is deceptive. We don't live by our desires. We live by the word of God. Watch what you desire because the Satan is prowling and waiting for that little opening or watching a little porn or getting something on social media. That's easy to get caught to it. And so, while the society says, look to yourself, God says, look at your desire and look at my plan for your life. Tune out to the world and tune in to me. Now, when it comes to falling in love, if you have been in love, you know that feeling. You were seated in church, there was a, if you're Christian, or you were seated at a cinema or someplace, and you looked across and there he was, or there she was, and you had that heart palpitating, pupil dilating, sweating in the middle of winter feeling. You wanted him in your, by your side, in your arms, preferably in your bed as soon as possible. You know, I will die if you leave me. Of course you won't die. It's that, what we call limerence, the romantic love, which I love it, the chemistry, because it's driven by a chemical called dopamine, and basically it makes you dopey. It makes you dopey. It's other levels, serotonin levels go down, same as obsessive compulsive behavior. The same changes happen if you take a cocaine hit. Love is an obsession. Love is an addiction. It, the parts of your brain that are involved in rational thinking are suppressed even more. You look at somebody and say, what does she see in him? She ain't seeing. Love is blind. Aren't you so glad that that craziness doesn't last for more than about 18 to 24 months? I am so glad because I'm married 44 years and I'm so glad I don't palpitate every time my husband walks by. We're both retired. It would mean I'd be increasing my high blood pressure medication every other day if that was to happen. Why? Because I love that. God says, you know, when you are in love, you look at your beloved and you think, there's nothing in this world better than you. For about 24 months. Just long enough to get you up the island married. Don't you just love that when God does that? I mean, you know, and then you look and go, what? You know, so the reality is the craziness doesn't last. But, but when you act under the craziness, you're acting under the influence of craziness. And the world's narrative is when you love, the action is you have sex. So I love you means I want your body. I want to have sex with you. That is a narrative that we have to speak against. We have to speak against and say the action of loving is not self-gratification but other-focused caring. Whether it be when you're dating or even when you're playing on the playground, loving somebody is caring for that person. 
Here Christian 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Christ God's love for the church and Christ's love for the church and the church's love for each other. The love that does not dishonor. The love that looks to the other. That constantly in a marriage seminar, as I say, if you look at your partner, your spouse, every morning and think, what can I do today to make it better for you? Both are thinking that way. Oh, what a marriage you'll have. But that works when you're dating. It works when you're just playing with someone. Not, how can I use you for my satisfaction? What can I do for you? That action is completely different to the world's action of let me use you for my biggest orgasm or for my satisfaction. Because when you are sexually intimate, you bond with the person you're sexually intimate with. And that again is God's wonderful pattern, that when man and woman come together, you form like a super glue bond, different chemicals, oxytocin, vasopressin, same thing that bonds a baby and a mother when the baby is at the breast. Aren't you excited about that? Those of you who are married, why do you think you're staying married? Yeah, sure, you made covenant bonds before Christ, before God and his church. But by having sexual intimacy, the more intimacy you have, the more you bond. But even one sexual intimacy, and not I'm not just saying intercourse, intimacy is bonding. You know, even a hug gives a little peak of oxytocin. Why do you think the Bible says greet each other with a holy kiss? We bond, even as a church community, when we are together. But when you have sex, it puts it high up there. And when you have an orgasm, it brings the steeple down. So, the reality is there is never anything casual about sex. Sex is never casual. Teach your children this. Demonstrate. When I say demonstrate, don't demonstrate sex. But demonstrate to them the bonding you have as husband and wife. Show them that. Show them. Talk to them. How in my books I talk of like a super glue bond. And therefore you tear each other. But you tear. You leave a bit of yourself and take a bit of that person with you. When you break up, why is rejection so painful? When you have been sexually intimate. Talk to your children about this. Teach them that they have a choice. They can listen to Satan, the world's narrative. As Christians, we would call Satan's lie that an individualistic lifestyle and instant gratification is what is needed. That they can feed their brains on porn and whatever deviant fantasy, have sex with anyone, use their body as a commodity. Of course, it will feel good. Orgasms feel good. They were created to feel good. But in the long term, it will leave them empty and vulnerable to rejection and pain and disappointment. Or they'll sit in the clinics like with therapists and say, I love my husband, but I remember all these things I've done. Guilt, shame, imagery that is fixed in the brain. We are not created for fleeting moments of happiness. We are created for something far deeper ultimately for life, for eternity with God. Teach your children this and be unafraid to talk to them about it. Teach them that 
fleeing from temptation is an active thing. If you're a Christian here, we can teach them in 2 Timothy chapter 2, flee but pursue something. You can't just run without having something to run towards. So always be there for them. And if you're a Christian, point them towards that righteousness, that God's word that guides them. So, having done all that, let's take time out. You know, let's take time out for a word on sex. So like those parents are go doing. Okay, interrupt the program for the family discussion on sex. So pulling things together that we've already talked about. Every parenting opportunity is a God-given moment for you to minister to your child and draw them closer to you, closer to God, and teach them things. I'm talking about sex. Children belong to the Lord. We've already talked about that. Demonstrate God to them in your life. Know yourself. Know who you are. Sex is caught more than taught. It's okay for your children to see you hugging at the kitchen sink. Because sex often starts at the kitchen sink and sometimes ends there too. But that's for the marriage talk. Sex is caught and taught. Demonstrate to your children. If your kids run, if your little girl or boy runs in while you're having sex, that's a teachable moment. Not at that moment, but later. It is a teachable moment. Be there for your children. Well, later, fix a lock on the door and tell them mom and dad need privacy, but that's okay. Be there. Be available and approachable. In a survey recently, 62% of children said the parents are too distracted to pay attention. What do you think parents are doing? They were on their iPhones and laptops. And you're telling your children not to? So, demonstrate to them. Be what we call authoritative parents. These are parents who make democratic decisions. I'm happy to talk more of this. It's kind of grace, not law, not being legalistic, but loving them and guiding them. Share your beliefs. If you're a Christian, you have a belief system in the Bible. If you're not, teach them your values from a very, very early stage. And above all, teach them that having sex is not necessary for a happy life. Because that's not what they're going to hear from the world. If you don't have sex, you are not fulfilled. I had a 45-year-old woman after a talk like this come up to me and say, the first time I actually knew you can be happy if you've never had sex. What about all the wonderful single people in our churches who are totally content and happy? My son is 43, and he's also very used to being used as a butt-end of my jokes. He's 43, and he's single, and he calls himself a sexually content single. He actually calls himself, well, but sexually content single. Because you can be content in your singleness been a doctor for 50 years, sexologist for 40. I've seen people die of lack of medication, health care, water, food. Not one empirically reported case of death by lack of sex. Not one. Nobody dies of it. We've talked about being a social media mentor to your children. Know what's on their phone. Watch for teachable moments. Watch for behavior changes. If there's any behavior change, talk to your children talk to the teachers. Prepared if things go wrong. You can be the most wonderful parent. You can be the GPS. You can have talked to them. You could have given identity. But things still go wrong. Be unafraid to accept it. 
be loving. Never get up this, you did what? Be gracious. If you're a Christian, we too are sinners. And our children too are sinners. Otherwise the cross wouldn't be necessary. So use that grace that God showed you on your children. Have an auntie or uncle as a backup. It's always a good thing to have in teen kids. Sometimes it's hard to go up to mom and dad and say, I've been watching porn. But an auntie, an uncle, a brother, sister whom they can go to and be there to pick up the pieces. And in today's world, always have a plan to teach your children about pornography before they are exposed. And I'll talk more on that if necessary. Okay. It's just to pull together for you Christians that, you know, we all are sinners. God accepts us. God accepts our children. But he wants us and our children to grow. And you are the ones God has given the responsibility to help your children grow day by day closer to him. Take it. If you're not a Christian, you have a value system that you use to draw your children on the right path of living. Use it. Just very quickly talk to the books. That's also the fact that that's my email and my website if you want to contact me in any way and my Twitter. So we have, the first book we wrote was called Teen Sex by the Book. That's for 14, 15 plus. The kind of book that they can read. It covers all the gender, porn, sexual activity, the whole gamut. Then we were asked to write something for younger kids, so we wrote Growing Up by the Book. That's for like 11 to 14 year olds. And when I say we, my name is on it because I'm the sexologist, but every one of them is this huge team effort from the Anglican Publications Department, who are my publishers. And that was for 11 to 14 year olds. It's written a way that parents read it and or auntie, uncle, grandparents. I'm finding it's mainly grandparents. Give it to the children because they talk to mom and dad, talk to mom and dad, questions in it. Then we were asked, what about littlies? And so we recently, just last year, released Birds and Bees by the book. I'm trying to keep the by the book theme. And um, so Birds and Bees is made up of six little books, and I sort of opened one if you want to have a look at it out there. It's uh, three starter books. Me and my body, me and my family, me and my brain, which is written in a way that you can read with the child, and three extension books, and they're particularly separate books so that you can read one as you see fit with your child. This is anything from 6 to 11, 12, whatever you see fit. The three extension books are Understanding Sexuality, Understanding Pornography, and Understanding Gender, all of which is extremely important for today's children. The Empire's Children is my fun life. I mean, you know, when I left, when I retired from university five years ago, I actually thought I was going to do things like retired people do, do creative writing and knitting. God had such different ideas. But anyway, so that's one of my, that's my first novel. It's set in the tea plantations of Sri Lanka. So do we have time for questions? Thank you. So I'm open now for any questions on anything to do with sex, however remote it may be. Anything at all. Yes, sir. 
Yeah. Excellent questions, both of them. Where do we get the information? That's exactly why Anglican Publication wrote the book. Because we actually wanted to empower parents. Because we were parents, youth workers, even ministers coming and saying, we'd love to talk about it, but where do we start? For those of you who are St. Mark's people, Anglicans, you probably know Archbishop, ex-Archbishop Peter Jensen. I mean, we often talk about this, Peter and I talk about it, the need that, you know, ministers need to be empowered to be able to talk about it. So we wrote the books, and that's why basically those books were written. They are unashamedly Christian, so if you're not a Christian here, they're very research-based. So I've had non-Christians come up to me and say that they've used it. I've actually had emails from Islamic people who are Muslim saying, we've read teen sex by the book, and we could actually use it because basically it deals with purity issues of living pure life. So the books provide age, never too young. Today we say you need to have started the talk before your kid goes to primary school, especially the porn talk and the body safety, body safety talk. Now we are used to that safety, body safety talk, but we are not used to the porn talk. And so I say, there's three things you have to teach your child before they go to primary school. If somebody shows you a picture or a video that makes you go, ew, or, you know, that's yucky. If a picture that makes, because you see, the body responds to sexual imagery, even a child's body. We're just created that way. Our body is created to, to just react to sex. So you can tell your child, if you see people who are naked, nude, without clothes, doing things that make you feel uncomfortable, feel you, then say, I don't like this. So say, we call it naming and shaming, but say, I don't like this. So I don't like it. Name it, run away, go away. So leave, don't stay there, leave, just go away. And importantly, talk to someone. So talk to your parents, talk to the teacher. Why? Remember, go back to neuroplasticity. These images are very frightening. I had a talk once where somebody, a psychologist, said that a six-year-old child had been shown a picture of someone having sex with an animal or something. And she was so traumatized that she needed psychology, you know, she needed treatment because she felt that she had done something horrible by looking at it until she could say it and work through it, the image stays in the mind. It can be very frightening to children. So we need to debrief those images. I often tell parents to tell children if they've seen something, get them to do something else. You know, play with the dog or, you know, play a game or go for a run. Something to replace those images with good things. So what you use for safe body, you know, good touch, bad touch, say no, run away, talk to someone. Same three points you use for pornography. As I said, body parts, very early. Please, couple of reasons there. One, it's important you teach them the right path. But there's a couple of other things. One is that if they see porn, they have a language to come and tell you. There was someone, you know, boys in class were showing pictures of penises and vaginas. and So they have a language. Two, just as important, they have a language to talk to you about if there's some abuse. 
and something happens, somebody touches them, how do they know it's inappropriate unless you've taught them first? So it's so important you teach them the language, the words, the genitals. Never too early. And by the way, if you're sitting here thinking, I haven't had the talk, <laughs> never too late. Tonight, dinner table is where you start the sex talk. <laughs> right, people? Go away, take that thought away. Tonight, sex talk at the dinner table. Okay, any more questions? Yes, sir. Good question. I mean, with the age of puberty dropping, mind you, what, what are we seeing now? Like 9, 10, 9, 10 even, right? Early stages of pubertal changes. So with pubertal changes happening fairly early, what, when do we even expect? The reality is that, yeah, there was a time when we said pubertal changes was where the sexual, we expect sexual. Today with the pornified culture, where kids are seeing pornified music videos when they are five years old and mimicking them. I mean, I've had people say that they've seen children being so sexual. They don't know they are being sexual. This is a monkey see, monkey do type thing. You know, mirror neurons in the brain saying, I see that, it looks good, let me do it. So when you're watching it at five and six, what you might see as sexual may not be even sexual to the child. So we are, we are playing this kind of, sort of walking this tightrope almost of when should we be talking to the child as, you know, versus the child's maturity. As a parent, you will recognize when the child is ready to talk about sexuality. If it is that you start early, your kid will in all likelihood go, Okay, and listen to you, and say, that's nice, mum, and go away. Which is why we made that birds and bees a picture book. It's like one of my Sri Lankan, or Indian, I think, friends told me, that um, their little kid at five came and asked, where did I come from, mum? So mum thought, okay, Auntie Pat said I should teach everything. So sperms, ovum, vagina, penis, the whole thing. Child listens and says, that's so nice, but I wanted to know whether I was from Sri Lanka or India. <laughs> so, you know, that's okay. That's okay, too. So, you know, that's quite all right, you know. It's, it's okay to teach your children. If they hear it early, they hear it from you. That's important. And if it's too much for them, they go, yeah, that's nice. Or the, little, the mother who taught her little boy that he has a penis then gets a call from the preschool to say, your son said on the playground that he has a penis. And that very wise mother said, so what do the other boys have? <laughs> What's the big deal? So he said he has a penis. So all boys have a penis. What's the big thing there, you know? So, never be afraid to talk. If it's too early, your kid will listen and go, eh, okay. The fact that, that, that it's a myth that if you talk to your kid, your kid's going to run out and experiment. Wrong, wrong, wrong. 
that has been proven completely research-wise wrong. Hear it from you. They are empowered to make decisions. My son, bless his heart, all of you, probably you Anglican ministers know Kamal, and uh, he's, he probably won't even remember this, but when he was little, he was in Sri Lanka, and I, of course, we had taught him everything. And when he was in school, somebody asked him to F off. And he said, do you know what that means? It's a really bad word for a good thing. And that boy said, no. So he said, okay, come on, I'll teach you. So in a corner of the school, he showed him everything, drawing on the, on the sand. Sex Education 101, what was he, like eight years old. So it's okay if you teach them the facts. Let's hear it from you. Anything else? Yes, Yeah, that's good. If you say, what if it's 11, 12-year-old, 13, 14, 15-year-old who's just not interested? Still, there's two sides to it. One is the kid is actually not interested in sex, which is okay. I mean, there is kids who are not interested, and that's fine. But it still is important for you to introduce the topic, or at least say, let's talk about it. You're not interested, that's okay. But I'm your mother, I'm your father, I need to tell you this. Let's talk, okay, because of pornography, because this is out there, I need to tell you about it and then leave it there so that when you hear about it, which you will, you can come to me. So making that, I guess opening the conversation is so important, even if the kid's not interested. It's important because I did a talk once and I had a, 13-year-old kid come up to me and said, I'm not interested in sex. I guess I'm asexual. I guess I'll stay this way. And I'm thinking your parents would be so happy if you stay this way. But <laughs> chances are you will in time. But that's okay because kids mature at different ages. Anything else? Yes. Sleepovers, the question being sleepovers, dangers of sleepovers. I mean, from everything I have heard, I've been talking in this area to parents and young people for, a, for about, I don't know how many years, three years, four years, four years, and I hear horror stories about sleepovers because you can know the parents, but you can't be sure what's happening on an evening in somebody else's house. And I'm not just talking abuse. I mean, that's a whole thing there, the sexual abuse, but I'm talking social media. Most social media concerns of like shared things, you know, selfies, all this happens when kids are together, peers, telling each other, let's do it, go on, challenging each other. So you're putting together young brains that are immature, want to take risks with all the social media, and then telling them don't do it. It's a risky situation. So you need to know, the parents, you need to know what rules they in, have on social media use. And even then, you are still taking a chance. And I know lots of parents now have said, you can play, we'll pick you up in the night. No sleepovers. I mean, it's, you're a parent. You draw the boundary. 
sorry, about? Gender. What do you do about, how do we deal with it? I mean, whether you're Christian or non-Christian. Let me just give you the one and a half hour talk in two minutes on gender. And because it's incredibly complex. And today's culture is such, the LGBTQIA culture. We'll just forget the asexual, the LGBTQI culture. And kids know it. For those of you who are sitting here going, what? the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex culture. We need to very quickly understand that gender and sex is incredibly complex, and the book Teen Sex by the Book has a whole chapter on it. It was, we rewrote the, the second edition. The book was put out in 2012. It's now in second edition. Next year we'll probably have to redo it. That's how far the, how fast the science is coming out with information on it. We have biological sex, that is, you're created male or female. Even that, things can go wrong. Now, it's no third sex. The eye is intersex. It's not a third sex. It's something where the genital development hasn't gone clearly male or female. Okay, you're with me there. Then we have identity, which is what does your brain feeling tell you who you are? Very rare cases, the best scientific research says, one in 10,000, one in 30,000 cases, people, the brain feeling of who they are is not in keeping with the biology. This is gender identity disorder, gender dysphoria, or the T, transgender. Then we have sexual orientation, which is who am I interested in, who turns me on sexually. Now this is where we are talking about the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and fluid, and a couple of other terminology. Of course, you do know that Facebook has 72 and rising terms for gender. So, so the reality is that when we talk about same-sex, we call it same-sex sexuality, stay with me here, there's at least three aspects to it. Whom am I attracted to? Who do I desire same-sex attraction? Who do I have sex with? same-sex behavior, and how do I identify myself? Remember what I told you? Sexuality is very much a part of the identity of our culture. Who do I identify? What do I call myself? I am fluid. I am lesbian. I'm agender. I'm polygender. I'm cisgender. Never mind. But there's 72 terms and rising. I need a label, an identity. The important things we talk about to people is that desires, if you're a Christian, we already said your heart is deceptive. We are all sinful human beings. We all have desires that are not in keeping with what God especially wants for us. So we have desire, and let's talk same-sex desire. Same-sex desires. But what you do with it, the behavior and whether you identify with it is a choice. And we don't know. We know there's no gay gene, but we don't know. For some people, the same-sex attraction is an innate 
thing that they actually say they've always felt that way. But you have a choice what you do with any desire. And I think that's how we talk to our children. We have to clearly tell them that, you know, God says our heart is deceptive. We don't live according to our desires. I tell people, you think I was born monogamous? Oh, I still look at a good-looking older man and go, oh, you know. So, the reality is that, that we are created that way to just look at good-looking bodies and go, oh, nice. But what you do with that is always a choice. And I think we need to be very clear with that with our children. It's not that just that spark of desire is the sin. It's the lust that goes with it. What you do with it, whether you build a fantasy, same thing applies. Nobody has asked me about the M word, masturbation, but the same thing applies with masturbation. You know, when you build the lustful thoughts, that's what God said is the same as having sex with someone. It's not just touching the body that matters. It's the lust that matters. It's the habit forming of lust. It's the same thing with same sex. The desires may be there. But what you do with it, the Bible says clearly man and woman were made for each other. Sex is for marriage. So any sex outside marriage, premarital, extramarital, is not in keeping with God's word. And that's the best we can tell our children. The moment we say, no, it is wrong, then it means if you have the desire, I hate you. Remember what I said? If you don't agree with me, you hate me. And that makes you homophobic. And that's crazy because homophobia, phobia means fear. It doesn't even mean hate, so it's very complicated there. Anyway, anything else? Yes, my dear. Sure. How do you, as a parent with a teen, how do you set that balance between, you know, first thing, you are not a friend, right? The only place you're a friend is on Facebook. Really good to be a friend on Facebook so that you know what's happening. But apart from that, you are a parent. That's important to remember. The second thing is how do you maintain this? Parents do it different ways. Some parents actually have a ritual where they say that mom and daughter, mom and son will have a mom-son mom-daughter or dad-son, dad-daughter time, maybe once a month, when you go out and you have a time when you share. Others do it in a more regular way and say, okay, once a week dinner time is when we talk about these really curly topics and we talk about it. Others do it as a different way, it's a lot of teachable moments. You watch television together and you talk about, look, something on sex comes up every day with the Me Too or something. So you talk about issues that come up in the newspaper. So you introduce the topic based on teachable things that come up. Or you make a special time. And kids enjoy special times with parents. And they may grunt, but they still listen. So overlook the grunts and keep the conversation. Because you need to be open so that if something happens, they know that you're there. And always keep saying that. 
the grace of you can come to me even if you've done something crazy because guess what? I've been crazy too. That's the best we can do. Pray for them. Leave them in God's hands. Anything else? Manju, how long have we got? We'll probably be here forever and the kids will be out there. One more question? Yeah. You mean camps? Christian camps. The, the thing is with camps that they are supposed to be and supposed to be strictly supervised. Now, having said that, we can never have a 100% certainty. The best we can know is that you trust the youth worker you are sending them with because that person is really responsible for them. But that's an extremely good question. And I've been asked that by other parents, and there is no easy answer. And you need to know your child and know the person you're sending them with, the youth pastor. That's the best we can do. Uh, at pastors here, how do you guys, would any of you like to add to that? Like the camps when you, when you take kids, like we do have that sort of, care of the kids, isn't it? Thank you. There's a lot of talk there. Um, I, I again would like to from go from bottom to top again, if you don't mind. Uh, so it comes down to yes, talking, and also I find again, I think Dr. Patricia also touched on it, training them, training their mind. It's all mind is the biggest control of your life. How you think, how you talk, how you do, or your life is going to be controlled. Your kids' life and our lives are going to be controlled by the mind. So it has, it, like she said, it was always starts off with a desire driven. Um, so it's all about me, it's my desires, and that's it. And it doesn't matter, anybody else doesn't matter. So it has to be transformed or neuroplasticity, neurosurgery, whatever you want to call it, you can do it. And it has to be more others driven or more value driven. The values are as we know, be based on the biblical value, and, uh, and as we should set an example as well. We can't have one and then talk to them. So not only talking to them about sex, but it's also training them in their mind. And good role models. We are the first role models. Parents are the first role models. And also, sometimes I see patients who don't have parents, who don't have a father figure. And they're not Christians as well. But I tell them, look, I'm not supposed to tell you this maybe, but 
take these kids to a Sunday school or uh, the youth, youth groups, because the role models are like my sons and like John's son and like your son. They are boys who are similar ages. They're not, like parents are old fashioned for some of the kids, obviously. Let the young kids teach them the right things. Anyways, give a big round of applause. <laughs> for you, just token. <laughs> I'll probably, I'll call uh, uh, Pastor John to wrap, uh, wrap up things. Thank, thank you everybody for uh, coming today and joining us with Mark's on the Sirocco Pano back across the road. For those of us who have been here with Pano, we've got a fun day on tomorrow, just lots of